HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Omsom, the new pantry staple brand bringing proud, loud Asian flavors into your kitchen. This week on Meet and 3, we head into the second part of our mini-series on global trade, where we talk about all things sweet, from chocolate and sugarcane to the cultural festival that accompanied the growth of the date industry in the U.S. They're using this romance and fantasy to say, dates are exotic and you should consume them. I like to think of the food that we eat as archaeological artifacts, in part because the history of humanity is in the stands in your produce market. It's not like other foods. We have very like, personal feelings about chocolate. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Sasha Annawalt and Melody Weintal from the USC Annenberg School for Communication and journalism. In this episode, we'll talk to Sasha and Melody about being a professional food journalist, what covering food means in the 21st century, and we'll get another double Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia was a born teacher, and she did that both on camera and off. Outside of the spotlight, Julia trained and mentored a great number of notably female chefs and food writers. Chefs like Sarah Moulton and journalists like the Boston Globe's Cheryl Julian. Working with and for Julia was a training course in and of itself, not only in how to cook, but in how to be a food world professional. However, the world in which Julia launched her protégés in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s was a very different one from today. The training ground of weekly newspaper food sections and monthly food glossies has shrunk tremendously in the digital age. At the same time, interest in food and food writing has never been greater. Recognizing this divide, the foundation has committed to supporting new generations of food writers, just as Julia did. So we were delighted when Sasha Annawalt, a professor at the USC Annenberg School of Journalism, asked the foundation if we would fund a fellowship in food journalism. In a world where fact-based journalism has never been more important, and professional training grounds more scarce, this seemed like a great way to further Julia's legacy. So Sasha co-founded the USC Annenberg Master's Program in Arts Journalism in 2008, 
An acclaimed critic, writer, and media entrepreneur, she was the chief dance critic for the Los Angeles Herald Examiner, LA Weekly, and KCRW. She's written for publications as diverse as the New York Times and Glamour Magazine, as well as interviewed everyone from Barishnikov to our own Julia. A native New Yorker, she even taught dance in a women's prison in Montreal. Melody Wayne Tall is an entertainment and food journalism who has been covering Hollywood red carpet events since she was 15. Her food journalism work began with video features for Latinx foodies, for Dimelo, and then for LA's ABC7 and the EastsiderLA.com. She is the inaugural Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts Fellow in USC Annenberg's Master's Program in Food Journalism. She's also an avid home baker. Sasha and Melody join us today to talk about getting a master's degree in food journalism and how their profession is evolving. Welcome to the podcast, Sasha and Melody. Thank you. So, Sasha, I thought I'd start with you just laying the foundation with the USC Annenberg program, which I have a very vague understanding that it was born out of a master's degree program that you were already running in arts journalism. But that sort of begs the question, how does how does food fit into the arts or does it not fit? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a great question. Um, and, and I'm going to tell a little story about that because, um, uh, but to get to it, it's interesting that you talk about Julia in terms of her special teaching of women and women chefs and women journalists and her relationship to them because one of the inspirations to do this program was the recognition and I'm really borrowing from Maura Judkis at the Washington Post who uh, wrote that she felt that there was a third generation of food journalists and that this third generation of food journalists was led by Soleil Ho at the San Francisco Chronicle and Tejal Rao at the New York Times and um, by Patricia, Patricia Escarcega at the LA Times. And that they were, she noted that they're all women and they're all women of color. And, and uh, she said, you know, really they're, they, what they're doing is that their geographical beat is the state of California. And that they are in a sense standing on the shoulders of Jonathan Gold and of Ruth Reichel. Um, who really were the first people to excavate Southern California in particular, um, but California in general, and to start to look at food and to ask the questions of, you know, how can we democratize food? What are, you know, Jonathan Gold, who was so brilliant, um, was someone who really pushed us to taste everything, to explore the city and to look at the city through um, going into immigrant communities and every single mom and pop and um, expose this incredible place to us um, in a way that we never had before. And of course, they're standing on the shoulders of the first generation, what could be called the first generation of food journalists, um, um, including Calvin Trillin, but particularly Craig Claiborne, all of which really uh, were critics who were looking primarily, particularly Claiborne, at kind of um, the, the, the Michelin Guide fine dining um, that, you know, by eating at great restaurants that he approved of, you would um, join the club and the elite. Um, and so we had this swing through from this elitism onto gold in the second generation to this third generation of critics who are writing right now. And it really occurred to me that there's a fourth generation and the fourth generation is Melody and others like her who, um, who could learn the art of eating, the art of cooking, the art of criticizing food, um, and take it to a whole other level in this particularly media-saturated environment. But the story of how it happened is because um, Gustavo Oriano, who's a Los Angeles uh, Times columnist and author, he wrote a book called Taco USA, among others, um, 
was the head of the journalism awards committee for the James Beard Foundation. And I was on the James Beard Foundation jury, and he came to me and said, Sasha, I need you to do double duty because we have so few people on the East Coast, on the West Coast, sorry, on the West Coast who are covering food, and, and, and I need you to do more. And I said, well, that's really fascinating. I can't believe, this was three years ago, that we're still in a, a state of things with food journalism where they're where it's not being paid attention to and there isn't a focus on it, um, an equal balance, at least to the East Coast, especially because Southern California and Northern California were in food boom. And he said, you know, you really ought to think about starting a food journalism program, because if you did, you'd be the only ones to do it. And there is no other such place where you could get a degree in food journalism. And I thought that sounded pretty exciting. Um, so I went to Gordon Stables, who's the director of the journalism school, and I said, what do you think of this? Uh, and he he was really on board. I have to say the school has been very, very, very supportive of this program, um, which was exciting to me because it fit right into the arts journalism uh, uh, program that I direct in, in the sense that um, we already had established a, a a way of getting people into through the through the school um, with a degree and the food to me food and culture and art and culture are you know kissing cousins uh, they're they are um, very much part of um, understanding the world and what was exciting to me about food is that if you looked at it if you if we could train journalists to be thinking about hunger and 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 waste and immigration and agriculture and all these large large topics that um any good journalist will have to be focused on in some way or other sooner or later, and we wanted to graduate people who were able to be thought leaders on these subjects, it would, food was a very welcoming way to approach the, the toughest subjects of our, of our time. Wow, that is a great uh, uh, explanation of the journey. So I feel like if you build it, they will come was a bit of the philosophy. And so along came Melody. And so Melody, Sasha's helped craft this idea and concept, but someone has to fulfill it. What, What was it that when you heard about this or learned about it attracted you to specifically pursuing food journalism? So first off, I had no idea food journalism was even a thing. Like I understood like food criticism and like Donovan Gold and food writing, but I didn't, I thought journalism is news, it has to be newsworthy, timely. And I always had a thing for food. I love to cook. Um, I think it's in my culture to like be, um, food is a part of our, our culture and it's always been a way of for me to connect with people like I bring someone over and I want to cook them something and so I was um when I got to USC um they were asking us like what things what topics we like and I was like I really like food and so that same semester where Sasha had reached out to me I was already like dabbing into food stories but because it was a news writing class I had to focus on a newsworthy angle of writing about food so I could cover my topic and also meet my uh, assignment requirements And when I got an email from Sasha saying, hey, we have this program, Um, we're trying to start a food journalism program, master's program, do you want to join? I was like, yes, of course. Um, Unfortunately, that year, I had gone over my units and I couldn't, I technically couldn't become a master's, progressive master's student. And so um, it wasn't until like recently this year when they were like, hey, all 2020 students, do you guys want to join the progressive master's degree? And I was I emailed Sasha quickly. I was like, hey, is the offer still open? I'd love to join. And here I am uh, taking the all the food classes uh, USC has to offer. And honestly, it's been so much fun. Um, the I find that everything is connected to food. It's like, it doesn't matter what's like stories. Um, there's always a story behind a dish, uh, a culture, um, a restaurant. Like I find that 
more interesting than the, like the food itself is also like a thing, <laughs> like the arts, um, how most writers used to think about food. But I think now we're kind of looking into more the story behind them. And like um, we have this thing in Argentina called sobremesa, where after dinner, you just st start talking about things that are related to maybe the food you ate, but maybe something that we uh, like you and your, your guests share. And I find that that's the kind of thing I'm starting to see in food journalism. It's just that the storytelling behind a meal. And and how did you come? I said in your biography, you've been covering red carpet again events since you were 15. You mentioned your your cultural background. Can you kind of tell us a little bit more of how how you became a journalist at 15, and and maybe how in your own personal experience, food is part of how you live and where you come from. Yeah. So I was working for a teen magazine. I got offered a, teen, a position as a columnist for Top Teen, which was a teen magazine in Argentina. And they wanted me to cover red carpets. And so I started doing that. Um, my fresh, I guess I was for, more 14 because I started my freshman year of high school. And while I was going to school, I was also um, trying to find red carpets and movie premieres to attend to be able to cover for the magazine. And um my dad's also an entertainment journalist, so um, I was like tag teaming with him and covering stories for him. And I, I really, I grew up with him. Um, journalism, I is in my blood. Like I grew up watching my dad uh, cover the Oscars. I even got to cover the Oscars. And so um, going into journalism for school, it was kind of like a transition of. Um, going from entertainment and now learning to do news. <laughs> and so um, having going having to jump from entertainment to news also made me try to find, I don't, I'm not that big on news. So I had to find a new passion within it that is, I, I don't want to say newsworthy, but like finding an angle that um, had more of depth to it. And I, I found that food had that depth. Um, entertainment can be a little shallow sometimes. So it wasn't, it wasn't fulfilling me in that way. Um, I'm sorry, I forgot the, the second half of your, your question. And I was, so connect us up with uh, food as a part of that. Oh, uh, just food. It was always a thing. I remember like buying a box of Betty Crocker cookies when I actually, the, my first connection to food and cooking was I really wanted that easy bake oven. And I was not allowed to have it because my dad was like, that is a mini oven. You do not need to buy an easy bake oven, which is just a light bulb. <laughs> and so he bought me a, a bag of uh, Betty Crocker's chocolate chip cookies and I started baking and like that just grew on me. And I went from baking cookies to um, matzo balls to cooking dinner with my mom, um, now making breads and pastries. And so it all started from that that little box of cook, Betty Crocker cookies. And I never thought that you could like, it was something worth reporting because it's like, I thought everyone cooked at home or there wasn't anything special to food. Um, I found it special to me because it was the way I connected with people. But it wasn't until I started the journalism program at Annenberg that I, I was encouraged to kind of pursue uh, food related topics. And my first, I think my first, food story ever was um, food waste in South Pasadena for an assignment. And from there, just like, man, there are a lot of stories you can tell with food <laughs> and it can be really visually appealing. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how it went. I didn't, I really didn't think you could become a food journalist. Um, I thought you can only become like a food critic. And I was just like, um, I didn't know if I wanted to go that route because I like the storytelling. I like storytelling more than I like criticizing. So Fair, fair enough. Well, we probably need more storytellers than critics these days. So, <laughs> um, so Sasha, let me pivot back to you and and ask you, and and then ask Melody if she wants to add anything from her point of view. But obviously, the pandemic has had a huge impact on every aspect of life and work, and even more strongly on the food and hospitality industry. So, I was curious: has this changed what student journalists are taught at USC? or what they're assigned to do, or what's what's been the impact? Yeah, um, well, totally. Every single class, I uh, now first of all, I don't teach the food journalism classes. Those are taught by Heather Fogarty and Tin Wen. 
and Heather was a the wine and uh, spirits editor and columnist for Bon Appetit, and she's worked at the LA Times. She was a style editor there and covered f- food there, and she's a writer. And Tin, when uh, was co-authored Roy Choi's book L.A. Sun. So both of them teach the four food journalism courses that we have, although I taught I taught it in its beta form the first year that we did it, um, and that was pre-pandemic. So both of them have been dealing with the pandemic um, and have told me, and Melody can certainly tell you what, because she's the student in the class, so I don't actually take their classes, but yes, the pandemic has become the subject matter and changed everything about um, how uh, uh, writing about food and thinking about food and covering food and telling food stories, in part because uh, the students have been learning virtually um, through Zoom, so they cannot physically um, often, uh, on some occasions they can physically go and interview people, but it it has to be very circumscribed by um, social distancing. The the larger question of pandemic, of course, it's, it's absolutely fascinating in certain ways because when you move into this period of time, I would say a space that sort of feels transitory where, where people have had to um, be extremely flexible, where, where restaurants have crashed and burned all around us, but there are these marvelous uh, other forms that are coming out of this um, that may stay and may disappear. For instance, we you're now having drive-in, um, there are restaurants that are drive-in restaurants um, with 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 car hops like you know Mel's Drive-in and and uh, uh, where people are going and eating and watching sometimes watching movies and having food. Um, there, you know, there are chefs who are making kits that you can take home. Um, Sonoka Sakai and David Chang are making kits. There are markets coming out of these restaurants. Um, the festival, there's a festival going on right now called Regarding Her um, or Re-Her, and it's a festival with only women owners of, of businesses um, celebrating each other and supporting each other with with uh, uh, this this ten day festival and Melody can perhaps talk about that, but the, so the shift she can address sort of more probably how she's actually putting it into into practice, but it 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 has impacted things and I do think that um, what we're going to see is a transformed landscape if we ever get out of this, um, very much transformed and that the media um, will also be transformed because there's been a, a, a kind of resurgence. There's L.A. Taco here is a wonderful um, journal and so so is The Counter and there's some others that are cropping up and um, this is the media is becoming a way to connect and a way to have some very serious conversations um, about food. Yeah, Melody, do you want to add in just from the student's perspective of how how you felt um, the pandemic's impact, you know, in relation to being a student journalist? I think just the biggest impact um, was how we would conduct interviews because I'm my preferred medium is video and that's really hard to do uh, in a pandemic where you're supposed to find sources of video uh from your home <laughs> mm. and so um I I really wanted to do like video storytelling at this time so I had to try to pick a topic that would allow me to have that proper distance um which is kind of how I got a little bit into agriculture um but I I kind of see more of the shift, not so much in food, but in journalism in general, how like we've, as a journalism student, you're, it kind of leveled the playing field for professional journalists too, who have been doing this for years, but all of a sudden are faced with that same obstacle that students are now like, I guess, learning because they're like, that's the situation. And so um, it really put us in the same level when it came to finding interviews and accessibility was I found it a lot easier because people either had more time were more available but um I th- I just saw the biggest shift in like the way we did interviews um even at the Eastsider 
Um, I have this column called uh, Neighborhood Flavor where I feature local restaurants, um, do a Q&A with them. And it was kind of like spotlighting their work and where yeah, I remember like for assignments, I'd have to drive out there and like speak to them, take photos of their things. Now it's all like an interview. Hey, do you have any photos you can send me? And then trying to put something together with what you have. Um, getting crafty. Um, that's the biggest shift. Um, as far as assignment, as far as like food related topics and like in, in the media, I'm not sure. It wasn't, I was just recently exposed. So like it was pre pandemic, it was post pandemic, uh, my experience with food journalism. So, um, I understood food like media, um, like Netflix series, documentaries and that, but not so much on like the news side of it. Um, what I, no, yeah, sorry. No, I hear you. And I, I think actually you sort of commented on it that food storytelling is storytelling and the st stories are always shifting. So pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, if you're focused on what are the relevant stories, particularly newsworthy stories, that that's shifting all the time, If you, particularly if you're a good journalist. So yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. All right, we'll be right back with more from Professor Sasha Anawal and journalist Melanie Wayne-Tall about where food journalism is heading. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Omsom, the new pantry stable brand bringing proud, loud Asian flavors into your kitchen. Omsom partners with iconic Asian chefs to craft rip-and-pour starters that pack all the specialty sauces, aromatics, and seasonings needed to cook restaurant-quality Asian dishes in under 30 minutes. No more diluted dishes, no more cultural compromise. Just bold Asian flavors sitting in your pantry right between the tomato sauce and olive oil. Learn more at omsom.com. That's O-M-S-O-M dot com. Welcome back. We're talking to Professor Sasha Anawalt and Melody Wayne-Tall, the recipient of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts Fellowship in Food Journalism at USC Annenberg. So, Sasha, let's go back to you and, and start this part of the show with talking about we were talking about already approaches to food journalism, but I wanted to sort of concisely go more global and talk about how food journalism, you talked about it a little bit at the beginning, has really evolved in the last decade, for instance, becoming more issue oriented and kind of con contrasted because in many ways, Julia was not and would have never called herself a food journalist, but she was a food writer. She had a regular appearance on Good Morning America for quite a long time in the 80s. And that was, I think, to some degree, at least one aspect of food journalism. So I was hoping you could sort of put it in context of how you see it how, having evolved, which actually you did in part already. We're talking about Jonathan Gold as that centerpiece. And then kind of in contrast to where Julia was in the landscape when, when she was mentoring other people to become at least professional food writers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I am so aching to, to talk, uh, to tell you my connection to her because um, in so many ways, she has a lot to do with why and how I wanted to do this program, but also how, um, you know, I think not only how I, I think about food, but how so many people think about food and television and different media. And she absolutely, I mean, her her uh what she did to open people up to food and the experience of how you thought while watching her that you could actually taste the food was in many ways the first time um where our senses could be brought into a flat screen tv and we could imagine something the flavor on our 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 mouths and she transformed the way we all, uh, many of us acted and behaved toward, I mean, when she burst onto the scene, there was horrible TV, you know, TV dinners and food was a flat subject in America. <laughs> it came you in know, a metal can or a plastic tray it, or it a, a, aluminum was, tray, actually. It was the so uninteresting. But, um, 
so just to go back a little bit. So when I was, um, my grandmother, um, Alice Spaulding and Julia Child were good friends. And that's because Paul Child and my grandfather, Hobart Spaulding, and Julia were all in the OSS, in the, which is the precursor to the CIA. And um, they became friends. And when they lived in Washington, Julia lived in Washington with Paul. I think she was there when she was first married, 1946 to 1948, but then returned, I think, in 1955. And um, my grandparents also lived in Washington, D.C., and one year, one year um, when I was nine years old, I went to for Easter to my grandmother's house. My grandmother's an incredibly wonderful cook and tall like Julia. So Julia was 6'2". My grandmother's very tall. And I sort of never forget bursting into the kitchen. And my grandmother was making something very strange. It was completely different food from what she had ordinarily made. Um, there was cornmeal mush and, you know, a, a, a chicken bone in the, and, 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 and she was cooking and this very odd sort of greens and, and things like that. And I said, Grandma, what are you doing? And she said, well, I am learning how to cook on welfare. She, my grandmother was working for the welfare department in Washington. And she said, I wanted to test how is it possible to live off of food stamps and off of welfare? And can one do that and still have a good culinary experience? And I thought, that's really strange. And she said, I'm doing this because Julia Child, Julia and I are going to have a television show. Um, uh, through, through WGBH, and it is going to be focused on creating really delicious food um, for welfare recipients. I thought that was amazing. Um, time passed, time passed, and, uh, you know, around um, in like 1999, 2000, um, I was working on a book, and I said, I wanted to uh, interview Julia Child, so I wrote to her and I said, I'm Sister Spaulding's granddaughter, that's my grandmother, and I said, I'd really love to talk to you and interview you um, uh, for this book. And she said yes, and I, I screwed up my courage and I asked her, I said, Julia, is it, am I dreaming or did you and my grandmother plan to have a television show? with with eating off of welfare. And she said, that's absolutely true. And I thought, oh my God, that's amazing. Later, I found this article written by my grandmother in Harper's Bazaar, detailing every single day of the 31 days of her cooking. And then time passed and Julia moved out to Santa Barbara, where um, we reconnected in, in, in before this interview with you, um, I found the five cassette tapes of interviews with her. Um, but the reason I bring this up is because she was a part of my consciousness um, and awareness growing up. And when I um, had this opportunity to do the this program, um, I really felt in a sense, a certain kind of lineage to her, um, which then extended also to Jonathan Gold, who um, had become with Lori Ochoa, his wife. Uh, Lori taught at the school, a friend. And, um, you know, it, it just, there was this kind of world of food building um, that I really felt very much was sort of an extension of things. And in looking at the, the people who had come through the program already, we had eight alumni before the food program actually even started at USC Annenberg who were doing food journalism. So there was sort of this con continuation um, of forms. And every single one of them also practiced art and did art um, too, which was, was kind of an interesting thing. 
Wow, that that is that is way more than I expected on the the Julia connections, and I feel bad asking Melody now to uh, to take on that story and the, and that uh, depth of experience and and kind of turn it to her to say as a rising food journalist in walking in the the uh, footsteps of that spiritual legacy. What are the types of stories and projects which you would? you know, like to cover and hope to start pursuing in your career. And and I think you can accept the obstacles right now of, of um, you know, not being able to be as close to your subject. So it kind of answer it in more of a perfect world circumstance than a pandemic reality one. I mean, in a perfect world sense, I'd be going out, taking photos, video, and like just spending time with my subjects. As far as topics go, I've recently been really interested in agriculture. Um, it's not something I saw too much. It hasn't been covered as much, and now it became something more important, seeing them as essential workers and how they're doing it. I also find that um, we're forgetting how food is grown and how long it takes and how much effort it takes to grow your own food. And I think that's something important, and that's those are stories that I want to share. Um, the whole gardening community, I loved how it like bursted during the pandemic. And I'm hoping that same energy like transfers over to the storytelling side of it. And no, that's I don't know. great. And and in terms of how do you see, you mentioned that you your favorite medium is vid- video and interviewing people. Is your aspiration to be a sort of reporter kind of food journalism or have you not gotten that far in sort of where you'd ideally like to sort of, again, if you could hire yourself, what job would you give yourself? (laughs) Honestly, I love the freelance field just because it gives me the freedom to choose a topic depending on where I see the world and the stories that I find. Um, I I like the idea of being a food reporter and just like, finding stories in like the food community and restaurants and any like topic in my uh, like bucket list to visit and, and to cover those and to find way interesting ways to tell those stories. I don't like, like saying, I want to cover this topic. I usually go by, Oh, I found a source that's really interesting. And I think I want to dive deeper into it. So um, I can't say where I see myself, but I definitely somewhere in like, probably storytelling and documentary and video. Uh, one of my favorite uh, shows right now to watch is with um, Antonio Diaz, who does the, oh man. I just Life and on, Time. Life and yeah, time. with Life and Time. Um, and he has his own, um, he did a, a wonderful like documentary series with uh, restaurants and like just showing he came to class once and like just explained to us his process and I was like oh my gosh I want to work with him so (laughs) if there's any like ideal field it's with him and since he did a lot of the 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 series in in a pandemic era um it just shows like um you can do a lot for people who don't know and and I'm one of them who don't know it just describe what kind of program is life and times Oh, Life and Time is a intern. I want to call it an international um, food-related journal. Um, they cover all sorts of stories from uh, migrant workers to um, issues abroad, um, and they're pretty much an, an international food journal. Um, they're they've grown a lot in the last ten years, and um, I think a big spotlight was um antonio diaz's migrant kitchen and so yeah migrant kitchen is a video series on kcet um and it's it's been transformative as well but i was thinking also melody can you quickly maybe tell the story of the two brothers or of the urban like a specific quick look at the urban agriculture story that you did the two brothers oh um well the two brothers is actually a lot of fun the Diotsu Kitchen is this Oaxacan Lebanese um, restaurant in Boyle Heights. And I I came across their name because it, it, it kind of stood out to me. It looks really nice aesthetically, but it also means thank you in um, their native language. And so I did that story for um, Neighborhood Flavor for the East Sider. And um, it was just a Q&A at first, but they really brought up a big issue that's happening in like um, 
lower income neighborhoods where um, the value of their food isn't seen. And like they have they have bomb food, like it's fresh, freshly made. The flavors like bring me back to when my aunt used to cook like a um, I had an adopted aunt who cooked Lebanese Oaxacan food because she was from there. <laughs> um, and it was just like a home cooked meal. And um, they they shared like how um, they could move to like a richer neighborhood and probably charge more and like gain more money, but didn't want to. They loved their neighborhood. They grew up there. Their whole family's there. And it kind of just shows like how like it's and now during the pandemic, you can't imagine how difficult it is to keep it going. And I that was one of like the first like food, I think, related stories that kind of blew up on the Internet, at least for us at the East Sider. Um, it got so many reshares and it like peaked our analytics on our website for the 2020 year. <laughs> um, then then the other story that I worked on is actually for my thesis is on Huerta del Valle in Ontario which is a, a urban farm community garden that kind of started as a, a way to uh, get produce to low-income families or and give low-income families a space to grow their own food and teach them how to grow their own food. Um, and I really support them and I loved working with them and doing the story because of like their mission and like, it's just, they're such humble people. And um there's not a lot of stories covered over here in San Bernardino. I live in Chino Hills right now. And like, I'm always seeing things that are happening in LA and things that are bombing over there. But like, there's this whole agricultural side of California that I think also goes o overlooked. And we're just like less than 20 miles away sometimes. <laughs> um, but yeah, those are the two projects that, I, that I've covered too. No, that's, that's great and fascinating. And I really think that and really hope that the pandemic has refocused and and awakened many people who are a little bit sleepy on where food comes from and who makes it at the you know level of production and growers and that that's very gratifying to hear that that's something you want to keep pursuing because my greatest fear is the 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 good attention on the the problems and and needs for improvement that we face and how food is produced and particularly how people who produce it are treated will sort of dissipate when things get better so um i hope you will stick with that so unfortunately we're we're starting to run short on time so we're going to go to a break and uh when we come back we're going to get um, another double Julia moment from Sasha and Melody. I'm waiting for Sasha to top the moment she already just gave. Um, and uh, so stay with us. Also, get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. Or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know what you think about today's show or share your ideas for future guests. A reminder, the new book of Julia's Quotes. People Who Love to Eat Are Always the Best People and Other Wisdom is out now in hardcover and ebook from Knopf. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Sasha, what's your Julia Moment? Oh, my gosh. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm also thinking about my the past moment that I just said, which... Um, I'll get to some others, but in in short, one of the things that I think is so interesting about the WGBH possibility of doing a show about um, with people uh, for people who um, are on welfare is that it's not ordinarily thought that Julia was she, she was folk as folk had a focus at all on people who were. Um, uh, on, on people who were poor, who had uh, nothing, um, and to be thinking in those terms. So I think like that was very illuminating for me um, to see her as somebody who cared. Uh, and but that said, my Julia moment. Um, my Julia moment there 
Well, one of the things when I was interviewing her, so we were we were up in Santa Barbara, which I think Todd, you you would go up to Casa Dorinda too, right? A couple of times, <laughs> I, I right? Yeah. Many pilgrimages. Many, to Casa many, Dorinda. many yes, pilgrimages. Yeah. You know, Casa Dorinda is never... where Julia lived out the very the last few years of her life, which is sort of a uh, posh uh, retirement community with multiple levels of support. Oh, it's absolutely divine. It's like it makes you want to retire, right? And and, and she would, but the, the kitchen there and the eating situations, you ate all together and there was a, basically a buffet. And I'll never forget, I don't know why, it just always strikes me as sort of amazing that with going through the buffet with her and her, having Julia serve me ribs and sort of plop the take the thong tongs and plop the ribs on my plate. And, you know, I thought, oh, this is just kind of incredible. I asked her what, uh, I, I can't imagine that I asked her directly what her last meal would be, but she wound up telling me, and uh, which I loved, which is, she said she wanted to have gin and steak, which I thought was <laughs> sort of great. <laughs> They're like, okay, gin and steak. I also asked her, um, you know, if she were to explore another uh, food culture um, other than French, where would she go next? And I was really surprised because she said Mexican food and and Chinese. And the Chinese was not so surprising because she had been and lived in China. Uh, Mexican, I did not expect. And she explained uh, and uh, that of course, both of those have enormous amounts of layers of complex, I mean, complex peppers and uh, spices and so much going on in each each one uh, that it was really, you know, that to her, very, very, very intriguing to think about those um, those cultures. So... That was that's pretty much it. The other is that I have one regret in life, which is that she asked me to come. She was going to give me lunch in Cambridge and I couldn't get there and I should have dropped everything and gone. I do regret that. Well, actually, I would say you might. Well, you probably wouldn't have regretted the experience. You might have regretted the lunch because I I was just reminded (laughs) that, you know, people actually used to very mildly complain that the food that Julia served herself at home was not nearly as exciting as one built up in their head might be what Julia was having every night for lunch and dinner. It was <laughs> always high quality. But yeah, you might have just been served a steak with a side of gin. Ooh. <laughs> Sometimes they're both good. Yeah. All right, Melody. So so coming to the full other end of the spectrum, do you have a Julia moment for us? Well, my first like experience was the 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 movie Julie and Julia. And before then, like that also was like almost my first exposure to like media, food media. Mm-hmm. And I remember just watching the show and her like cooking every recipe in the book. And I was like, oh, Julia Child. Oh, she did a, a show um, cooking. And it kind of reminded me like I grew up basically half my life in Argentina, um, more like six months out of the year. I was spending it with my grandmother over in Buenos Aires. And we would always like during around nap time, or like, which was around lunch. Uh, after lunch, we'd sit down, well, we'd lay down and watch these cooking shows, which um, I don't see that often anymore, where like, which was like Julia Child's show, where like they would just sit in front of a camera for half an hour to 20 minutes and teach you how to cook a dish. And that that's a medium that I kind of miss because it was it was entertaining. Like it was always fun to see how they would... Um, build up the dish that they're making while they're they're cooking and trying to fill in the time between each ingredient and it there was this one one woman who was around the same time as Julia so I'm, it was probably inspired from her show called Doña Petrona and um like I would watch it it was more of like my mom when she was younger like who would watch it with my grandmother but it just carried over to my age and like I kind of saw the connection between Doña Petrona and Julia when I watched Julian and Julia. And so that was, I guess, my Julia moment. I was like, oh, this woman is just like the like the show I used to watch with my grandmother. And from then it was like, oh, she, she's done so much for the community and like her, 
her exposure like in food media um like she brought like french cooking to the united states and it was just cool to see like what she's done well, I love that connection, both both to that movie, and we really have Nora Ephron to thank for bringing that to life with such passion and commitment. But I, I love that that was your entree and that that brought you back to your family connections in Argentina. So thank you. That's wonderful. Well, thank you both for joining us today and sharing um, about the USC Annenberg Food Journalism Program and your experiences with it and with Julia. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, and thank, thank you, you for, for the us. support and everything. It's it wonderful. It is our, our pleasure and gratifying to hear how it gets implemented on, on the day-to-day, even during a pandemic. So <laughs> that my hat's off to everyone, especially trying to uh, do journalism at this time. But I, but I will attest as a podcast host that, yeah, a silver lining of the pandemic is uh, subjects you want to talk to are much more available and easy to reach than mm-hmm. in the past. So that's, mm-hmm. that's one small benefit. <laughs> it's true. So to learn more about the master's degree in food journalism, you can go to annenberg.usc.edu forward slash journalism. And uh, I've realized for we're all using secondhand as Angelinos, but the USC in this case is the University of Southern California. And you can look for the Master's of Art in Specialized Journalism, parenthetical, the arts link for more about the program. If you want to learn more from Sasha, she's at Sasha Anawalt, A-N-A-W-A-L-T. And from Melody, she's at Melody Waintall. It's W-A-I-N-T-A-L. And they're both on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to know or follow more about USC Annenberg, which is USC's, uh, USC's communication and journalism school, you can find them at USC Annenberg on Facebook, Twitter, as well as Instagram. And for the latest from the foundation and about new podcast episodes, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer at The Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>